The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast-paced world... Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia. Holy shit, we just released our Patreon, and we're already so ecstatic at the feedback we've gotten and um, the patronizations from all the many people and listeners like you. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We've already reached our second goal, which is incredible. And uh, if you haven't checked it out, go to patreon.com forward slash whizbrew, watch the video, read the stuff, consider becoming a patron of this wonderful podcast. Uh, Thank you, thank you, thank you again. Welcome to an extra spooky, ooky, ooky, ooky episode of Wizard and the Bruiser. I'm your Transylvanian traveler, wizard, man, vampire, Jake. Brains. Brains. You probably should have picked a more verbal Hollywood horror archetype, Holden. I'm the bruiser holding me <laughs> And I'm Frankenstein's monster Frankenstein didn't eat brains Oh well, I was saying oh was I being a zombie You were definitely a zombie <laughs> I'm bad at Halloween Just fucking Boris Karloff just cracking <laughs> open a skull <laughs> Oh my mommy <laughs> I'm a crazy mommy <laughs> I'm the creature from the swamp lagoon <laughs> That's right. All of the classic universal monsters are here on display. Monsters are boring, dude. Monsters are dumb. <laughs> hey, Welcome. you know what's you know what's more fun than a dumb monster with what? a definite shape? What? A fucked up prosthetic goobly Google that can look like anything and has dog heads within its own guts. That's right. Today we're doing an episode on the thing. Welcome to. The thing. <laughs> Spanish for the Nino. Oh my I'm god. I'm sorry, I had to do it. Thank you everybody for joining us. That's our show. Oh no. Okay. <laughs> so this movie is beloved. It is part of like the canon of like terrifying 80s horror movies. I love this movie, Jake. I was like so ecstatic that you wanted to do an episode on this movie because I wanted to learn more about it because it's such a, it even today is such a sleeper sort of like hidden gem for some in a way. Like, yes, it is regarded as this great horror movie, but for a person like me who didn't get into horror movies till way later, you know, going into getting into horror movies, you've got your Freddies, your Jasons, your Mike Myers, your sort of your basic slash stuff. You got the 
the shining you've got the exorcist but i think it takes a little bit a, a few steps in of being of like checking out horror movies for the first time before you really come across the thing and then it's sort of like this just amazing unique experience that is so phenomenal that even though it is so highly regarded you still can only wonder like why it's not even more talked about than it already is well i mean i i actually have a really fucking I have a good ass theory about all this, and I'm gonna, I'm you bet, I'm gonna wait till the end. I'm gonna Ooh. tease you. I'm a tease you. Uh, Ooh, and he's fake uh, handling balls with his hand. What? Right now. No, these are two tiny breasts. <laughs> <laughs> when I was growing up, the thing was like one of the big horror movies because I was a uh, sheltered uh, private school kid, and the fact is, like, we couldn't actually get access to a lot of R-rated movies. Mm. So, like, the really cool kids saw The Exorcist at age eleven. Uh, Alien was like another one and the thing was up there it's just one of these like so fucking scary you'll shit yourself like legendary movies and I hadn't I just never got around to it until I was like in my 20s and when I finally got to watch it I was leaping out of my couch being like just in blown away by the effects by the scares by the psychology of it it was like mind-blowing to see that this thing that I had been so like you know this thing could have that could have been anything by reputation was like not even hyped enough it was it's because it's this wonderful mix of all all of what you just described that the it could be all of the three things you described could be a singular film uh, just a film with amazing monster effects we've mm. seen tons of those but yeah. maybe the plot's a little flimsier this or that but it's got awesome effects well this has those le- these amazing level effects mixed with this wonderful premise that is full of just psychological terror uh, 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 and and tension that you could have that movie without any of the effects and it would still be a fantastic movie but you add those monster effects in and it's phenomenal and all then of it all, being delivered yeah. by a fucking murderer's row of character actors yeah like a just a killer ass ensemble of actors like like wonderful and 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 it definitely has that feeling of like you know kind of like you know when jaws like when they're all on the boat you know singing together and like they're you know like like dudes together in a situation having to like figure it out and 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 just really down to business but each with their own unique personality do you here's the thing that i came up with when like i tried to find a lot of uh I tried to find like a lot of commentary on the thing. I tried to like wrap my head around like what the general consensus of the fans were and like okay, yes. Everyone remembers Kurt motherfucking Russell Absolutely. at his peak like bearded glory he's, he's as phenomenal McCready. as McCready in this film. Everyone remembers Wilford fucking Brimley yes. as the final boss of this fucking adventure. <laughs> Did not see that coming, but he's amazing as Blair, uh Keith David as Childs, and then like Things start getting a little fuzzy. Like, yeah, it's a good it's a like people were messing up names left and right. Like people like like, do you do you remember that? Like, like, do you remember that? Like, Dr. Copper was the guy that got his arms ripped off. Do you Uh remember that? Like the guy who ran the dog kennel was Clark like or windows and like all these people kind of get like blurred a little. But they still deliver this energy, this like very weird, like male co-workers that are just like here for a fucking gig they do not want to make friends yeah. and like they were this and th- that's super key to the plot is they all just want to go home they were like so close to leaving that they have all checked out which i yeah. feel like on any big project we've all kind of like 
been at that state where you just like do not give a fuck anymore. Totally. And and I think that also speaks towards the um psychological terror that there were no alliances really formed. Mm-hmm. Like all none of these people have any reason to truly trust each other, you know, or or to be able to play towards each so it's all this like chess match of yeah, which of course we have chess in the actual, but it no. all becomes this psychological chess game of like, who can I trust? Who who was I? Ar- and and the only way I can trust them is really just to know that I was completely around them the whole time from the moment we ran into that crazy dog. <laughs> um, and I love how simply it starts too with that fucking dog. Like yeah. it's just so simple. A dog ran away and found and got to another base. That's how this whole thing starts. You know the dumb piece of trivia, right? And that opening scene. Uh, I think I know what you're saying. What is it, though? The, the Norwegian guy is that's firing at the dog yes. is in Norwegian saying the entire plot of the movie. Yes, yeah. Like, you can't, you know, you don't speak Norwegian, but, like, the lines are literally like, watch out, bang, that's not a dog, bang, it's some kind of thing, bang, it impersonates people, bang. Yeah. Like, Perfect. It's so great. And let's talk about where it all came from, from the beginning. Um, Now, the thing is uh, based on a novella that came out in uh, 1938 in Astounding Science Fiction. Which is a landmark science fiction anthology. Absolutely. uh, The novella is Who Goes There is the name. Good title. A good ass title. And uh, sci-fi um uh, uh it was written by uh sci-fi uh giant john w campbell jr under the pen name don a stewart it's uh john campbell was the editor-in-chief of the magazine at the time and yes. it would have been unseemly to publish his own stories mm-hmm, mm-hmm. so he he uh he was an editor of asf from uh, 1937 up until his death he is credited with shaping the golden age of sci-fi he was uh and the golden age i feel like uh, came like kind of just after him and it was more about realism psychological depth to characters which the thing has in spades Isaac Asimov says in the 1940s this is how I assume Isaac Asimov more speaks. Jewish in the well I don't want to be because then I'm do it <laughs> don't stop staring release at me like the limiters stop staring don't let at the me. shackles of society tell you how to work Campbell Tom- no I know I can't do yes. this <laughs> Campbell dominated the field to the point where too many seemed all of science fiction. Is he making, all right, all right. I'm going to restate this. In the 1940s, Campbell dominated the field to the point where many seemed, uh, where too many seemed all of science fiction. It's a bad sentence. But what he's saying is essentially Campbell just like took that shit and just ran with it. And for a while there, it seemed like he was the only dude doing it. He was so prolific. Also, a uh, little tidbit here. Uh, Campbell actually gave L. Ron Hubbard his big start with Dianetics. <laughs> well, he published a lot of L. Ron Hubbard's work. And- he was really big in a pair of psychology. And that's where, where Campbell uh, created a bit of a divide between um, his likes and some of the people he worked with. He got a little too into uh, the mumbo jumbo of the mind. <laughs> what crazy. Thank God that that Dianetics stuff never really went anywhere. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd be celebrating a monster. In 1973, Who Goes There was voted by the Science Fiction Writers of America as one of the finest science fiction novellas ever written. Lancaster, uh, uh, the, now Bill Lancaster, I should all, I should now go to him. Bill Lancaster is the man who's credited oh. with writing the thing. Oh, uh, the screenplay. Yes, the oh, screenplay. Okay, 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 okay. You ready for a uh, c- crossover? Yeah. Um, so, when we did our uh, Friday the 13th episode, which you can go back and check, uh, we talked about how that movie was made in direct response to Friday the, I'm sorry, to Halloween. 
which of course was directed by John Carpenter. Yes. And uh, we talked about that the uh, original uh, Cunningham, the director of Friday the 13th, was uh, embittered after he had tried to chase the success of another movie called Bad News Bears uh, with his shitty sports movie. Mm-hmm. The only other credit that Bill Lancaster has, has as a screenwriter. He also wrote Bad News <laughs> Bears. So it's it's it all comes in circles. It's Bad News Bears and John Carpenter and horror and everything comes together. Bill Lancaster was born in L.A., born into the Hollywood system. He was the son of Burt Lancaster, who starred in Birdman of Alcatraz and Atlantic City, along others. He actually served as a lookalike for his own father for a while. Uh, he, That's a good career. Yeah, exactly. And um, he developed polio at a long, young age, and one of his legs was shorter than the other. Oh, no. I just put stuff down here. I could tell from watching the movie. I was like, oh, this is some real gimpy dialogue. <laughs> I'd be remiss, too, if I didn't also mention The Thing from Another World, just to backtrack to uh, uh, b- before The Thing. Uh, it was a 1951 black and white sci-fi horror film. It was the first um, adaptation of Who Goes There. Did you watch any I Actually, this is actually amazing because um, John Carpenter in interviews will emphatically state that this movie like left an impression on him as a kid yes. and um, you know he says he was like four or five when he saw the re-release in theaters and um, it is a dumb looking movie uh, the main monster is just this like bald Frankenstein-y thing that just kind of lumbers around the premise is that he is not some kind of the the thing isn't some kind of amorphous imitator shapeshifter it's just a giant dude who's made of vegetable matter and the half yes. the movie is like all these like old timey like Hollywood you know actor types like the military guy the scientist guy and right. like the the sassy reporter just being like you're telling me this is some kind of super carrot that's terrorizing us right now and it's just a big Frankenstein so like, there were some interesting effects and some good scares and um, uh, legendarily uh, this movie was co-directed by a world famous like golden age Hollywood director Howard Hawks mm-hmm. that uh, Carpenter extensively studied when he was in film school and mm-hmm. Hawks uh, has like a very long list of like uh, of, of uh, comedies and westerns and like gangster movies he was a well respected filmmaker and at the time uh, science fiction and horror were just I mean I guess it's still true right now tawdry they ah. were beneath someone of his of his standing. Mm-hmm. So the legend goes is that he, he be- directed it, right? And that Nyby is just sort of getting the credit. Is that what you're going to say? That like Nyby like did some like did a lot of like it was Nyby was there on set helping make the thing go. But Hawks had a lot of involvement on individual scenes and shots. Um, but uh, even then, even, despite the fact that it's very rote, uh, like, you know, it's, it feels like the kind of movie you'd watch in Mystery Science Theater 3000. It's very like, um, po- it's a post-Hiroshima, like, don't trust scientists, like, a oh story. Oh, my God. The which best. is hilarious. Like, there, there, there's one scene where it's just like, this, uh, is, is this where you're talking about the scientist is like, please, monster. <laughs> you're, you're, I know you've, you're a brilliant monster. Please, we'll work together. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll you know, we'll. And then the monster just throws him across the room murders him the best is the scientist goes into this fucking weird long diatribe when he it turns out the scientist was like secretly trying to grow more things in his lab is he's it's it's one of my favorite tropes is like but um the scientist goes into a long thing about it's like that's right he like the creature he doesn't confuse himself with the distractions of the flesh he merely feeds on bloods and creates seeds but 
it's the perfect, most logical form of reproduction. Like, it's just goes in for like a five minute rant about how much he hates fucking. <laughs> it's so weird. But uh, the movie, like, even though it's kind of been largely forgotten, it was a uh, well-known and successful uh, horror movie of the time. Mm-hmm. So, like, even though everyone dis- like we're dismissing it right now, it like the fact that it was John Carpenter remaking this classic, like, people were like actually um, kind of like, you know, it, it was it was a it, they were big shoes to fill for John Carpenter. Yes, and and still, but and and at the end of the day, uh, Bill Lancaster's script, the thing that we see in uh, then and that this episode's about, is far more connected to the trace material than uh, the thing from another world. It is oh. much more actually, I read the full plot outline of who goes there and it is pretty to the T what the thing mm-hmm. is minus the like intense uh, monster uh, effects and stuff that, that you get with uh, with the uh, modern or not modern day, but but the, the 1982 uh, sci-fi horror film. So John Carpenter sees this movie around the age of four or five and claimed it frightened him terribly. He later would read the story who goes there in high school and he liked that version even better he was born in 1948 in carthage new york his father was a music professor he would go on to write his own themes for his films even though he wouldn't write that theme for the thing um he spent most of his childhood in kentucky when he's kind of checking out all this horror stuff and he's getting really into like low budget horror films in general Mm -hmm. He's uh, really into, you know, stuff like The Thing from Another Planet. And he begins making his own horror shorts with 8mm film before starting even uh, before high school. So he ends up going to Western Kentucky University where his father taught, but then transfers to uh, USC, University of Southern California School of Cinematic Arts in 1968. That's where he uh, uh, quit school to make his first feature, Dark Star. Now, Dark Star was mentioned in Mm -hmm. a another episode jake it is a crossover yes it is it is um I, can i do it i don't know some people don't like it when i do it it's the, the fact is we were basically <laughs> surprised you know what before <laughs> all, we start connected time is a flat circle yeah before we started this podcast <laughs> i wasn't aware that human beings are part of an interconnected whole influenced and inspired by each other it's pretty awesome though that th- this connection is pretty badass mm-hmm. he starts working with dan o'brien um on this film, Dark Star. And Dan O'Brien, would he go on to write Alien, right? He goes on to write it? Yeah, yeah. He would, uh, he would, and uh, inf- famously so, like, hold on to the rights and that writer's credit for, like, a lifesaver in the ocean. Like, yeah. he was, like, down with being the guy who wrote Alien. So, Dark Star, I mean, can you, it, 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 that Alien episode was so long ago, I can't remember how much of Dark Star were covered. I'll, ju- I'll just a say lot. this. It was 1974. <laughs> it was a sci-fi comedy. They made it on a budget of $60,000. It was O'Bannon and um, Carpenter working just right next to each other, multitasking the whole thing. Carpenter did the music. O'Bannon acted in it and did the s- special effects, um, for which George Lucas would later hire him. Um, uh, based off of uh, the way uh, how Dark Star turned out. And because Dark Star came out the way it did, which is actually pretty decent, uh, Carpenter gets the attention of Hollywood of being able to make these low-budget sort of like sci-fi kind of uh, cool flicks, right? And that's when he uh, starts getting some some low-budget uh, movies, mm-hmm. uh, movie jobs. He goes on to make Assault on Precinct 13, which I believe I believe I've seen that one, and that yep. one rules. That is a great movie. I don't I don't think I've seen someone's watching me. Have you seen someone's no. watching me? Have you seen Eyes of Laura Mars? Nope. 
and then his big, of course, huge historic break. Uh, I bet we'll get an episode on this as well at some point down the line. Halloween. <laughs> he makes this on a $320,000 oh, budget, <laughs> and he makes $65 million off of it. So that is a profit of $64 million. Seven hundred, and that's back de- back then. Money. Like, holy shit, that is like wowzers, good money for for a, a Hollywood picture, and um, yeah, that, that that's kind of where his whole career gets launched, and what kind of leads him to being able to make a higher budget movie like The Thing. He uh, ends up meeting Kurt Russell when he directs a TV movie called Elvis. Which he, uh, so that's when they sort of gained their partnership together. Now, I really needed to go, I meant to go back and watch some scenes from Kurt Russell starring as Elvis. I'm guessing he started as Elvis. Maybe he started as the dickhead manager or something. I don't know. That would have been amazing, though. Kurt Russell is like. Honestly, the more I, like, see Kurt (laughs) Russell, I'm always just upset that he's that charismatic. (laughs) He, I love Kurt Russell. He's a very charismatic guy. Why don't you like Kurt Russell? He's too char. I don't like. He's I, too charismatic. He's what does be- that even mean? It's he's been lovingly married to Goldie Hawn for like the past I, yeah. half century. What? It's, I, so he's a decent good. I, he's a decent good person. He chooses his projects well most of the time. <laughs> And uh, everyone who's worked with him has good things to say. I just, I'm waiting for this to, to find out that he, oh, like, right. rips, like, he just, like, punches dogs for fun. Yeah, I punch dogs for fun. What, are you going to crucify me for it? I mean, it's it's not a good look. It isn't a good look. Have you tried quitting? I've tried some new looks, <laughs> you know? But kissing cats doesn't make people feel good either, okay? So you tell I me I would rather kiss a million cats than punch a single dog. <laughs> You should run on that platform. As president. As president. I will make out. Queens. Everyone's like, that doesn't exist at all. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, yeah? Well, (laughs) 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 as president of Queens, I'll punch every stupid dog in this stupid I'm restoring dignity to this White House. (laughs) 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 My opponent. Will the good gentleman from North Carolina please stop punching dogs? I just want to say both of these gentlemen are making me uncomfortable. <laughs> but if I have to choose between the lesser of two evils, I'll go with the dog puncher. Because <laughs> I just can't stand his face using a tongue. He's using tongue. Did everybody not see that? And they have they have a uh, sandpaper tongue, so it's cutting his tongue all up. It's disgusting. Lies, lies, and slander from the opposition. So after Elvis, he goes on. Well, it turns out the real body horror was this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) It's now the 1980s, and John Carpenter is established with Halloween and these other projects, and he moves on to make The Fog, which I have to say, I don't think I've seen The Fog, and, like, I really want to see The Fog. That's kind of, that's The Fog, I feel like, is the jump between, like, liking John Carpenter's just hit movies and being a John Carpenter, like, fan. Okay. I I really want to check The Fog out. It seems like a pretty cool flick. Escape from New York, of course, the classic. I don't think I've seen it in forever. Um, I'm pretty sure that's one of Marcus's favorite movies. Uh, Duke of New York. Yeah, right. Yeah. Um, did you see Escape from New York? Uh, I actually Megan only emphatically like select has, scenes. Only um, selects it. We need to maybe we need to sit down and watch Escape from New York, Jake, because it's been way too long for me. I don't. I we made, even did that episode of Drunks and Dragons where we like played through a fantasy version. Of yes, it. <laughs> and we were like, oh yeah, Escape from New York. Yeah, I remember that when he does the the two headed head. And, but um, uh, he, so John Carpenter began work on the thing 
literally as soon as uh, Escape from New York wrapped. I don't know how much of the work of these early drafts ended up in the final thing, but apparently early drafts were written by Toby Hooper and Kim Hinkle, the co-creators of Texas Chainsaw Massacre. And then later on, um, you've got Bill Lancaster coming in and writing whatever the draft he wrote, which is is the writer credit draft. So a lot happened. Uh, Basically, the entire production changed when... um John Carpenter hired a very young special effects artist named Rob Boutine. So Rob Boutine, we can't talk about Rob Boutine without talking about Dean Cundy. Dean Cundy is the cinematographer on on the uh, on the thing now, and I'll, I'll I'll go more in depth into Dean Cundy later. But I will just say this: uh, they were working together on a different project. Let me try to find what that project was. But uh, Dean Robert Robin R. Boutine, um begged. Dean Cundy to introduce him to Carpenter. He wanted to work with John Carpenter so, so bad. He was a horror film lover from the day he was born. No, but from when he was a very young child. And at age 14, he sent a bunch of illustrations to special effects makeup artist Rick Baker, who hired him. They worked, he worked with Baker on The Howling and American Werewolf in London. I mean, I mean, the, American Werewolf in London is, is known for one of the greatest, like, special effects makeup scenes in all of, like, film yeah. history. Combining, like, like prosthetic makeup with stop motion with like it's it's an insane undertaking that has not been uh, replicated <laughs> honest to god he did work on star wars in the cantina scene he was the tallest player in the cantina band botten was oh he was uh, he was one of the figuring modal node guys yep, that's totally so the we- tallest one yeah and he begged Dean Cunny to introduce him they had worked on ah there it is they had worked together on rock and roll high school oh a tra- that's a, is that trauma uh no is, is rock and roll high school trauma i don't think it is but okay. i thought the same thing maybe it is actually well it just either way feels like it should all be connected i know right and and so they uh so they he met carpenter they really got along quite well carpenter uh hired him to to work on the fog and then of course later the thing um now botten is like a maniac this is like his one of his masterworks, the thing. I mean, he just went bananas on it. He went literally bananas. Uh, he, according to legend, uh, holed himself up on the Universal lot in his own workshop for a solid year, sleeping there, working there. It said he worked seven days a week for a year, like late nights. He, like um, he worked with uh, with a storyboard artist who I I don't know his name. I didn't know his work, but like. Real honest to God comic book and horror nerds uh, apparently worship this guy, Mike Flug. And together they started crafting uh, all these sequences together. The, uh, you know, all the big horror uh, effect shots that we associate with the thing. And as they were developing all these crazy designs and all these rigs together, uh, it basically shifted Bill Lancaster's script to make these like moments happen. So I guess we should explain uh, a little bit about how they were given sort of carte blanche to go just completely insane with monster and creature designs. And the reason why is uh, I'd have to explain the premise first of all. So first of all, if you haven't seen the thing, I really don't want to ruin the movie for you. So go fucking watch the thing. Like I feel like we've gushed and I would hope enough at this point for you to say maybe I should turn this off and go watch the thing first. But if not um uh this is the premise is basically that they're stuck with an alien life form that can imitate other life forms now that said um uh it was botine's kind of innovation that uh you know he introduced it according to legend he introduced this uh, by legend i mean 
videotaped interviews I watched <laughs> with my own eyes. Yeah, we should say too. We used uh, we used a documentary as source material in a big way. I'm sure uh, yeah. the thing uh, terror takes shape. Yeah, uh, it's it's on YouTube. It's an hour and a half long. So definitely check that out after this uh, if if you're more interested in more. But uh, Botine came up with the idea that uh, while other monsters traditionally had you know a speci- you know even the thing from another world from the classic movie, it looked like what it looked like. The thing being a shapeshifter held like the genetic memories of everything that it had ever assumed. Every other creature, which, by the way, I didn't quite, I didn't really put that together in, when watching the movie. And having that explained to me after the fact made me go like, that makes so much more fucking sense why you've got these like crazy weird spider legs coming out of the, of the tendrils and yeah. tentacles and all these like just this mishmash of claw, wrecking. that claw hand, that crazy claw hand that grabs the pole and oh, lifts the dog creature. The up dog the, scene is fucking crazy. Dog um, scene's so good. Um, fucking a hose. Even though that was, uh, we should say that was actually one. That was the only monster that, that they didn't make. That yeah. was done by a different guy, but we'll get into that. Uh, we'll get into that. Stan Winston. Yeah. Um, the idea was like this thing would 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 have no definite shape. Yeah, it would always be changing, always adapting, always using its repertoire of just horrible appendages, and like just kind of trying to digest and process the new life forms that it absorbed into itself. Um, the even just the idea that like every cell of it has like a self preservation instinct was super like interesting. Mm-hmm. And what always got me. What always made the thing so terrifying to me uh, to this day is that it imitates people perfectly to the point where like you can't like there's still active debates um, online whether once you're infected, do you even know until you turn? Right. Um, The idea that like the way it deals with people, the way it talks to people, the way it interacts with people while in disguise is just like a cheap, flimsy, like. That it's so advanced and so deadly that it reads you like a book and be like, yeah, duh, I'm a human, duh, whatever. Right, right. And as soon as it's backed into a corner, it just flips into full uh, survival mode, mm-hmm. which is like kind it's psychologically, it's a terrifying concept. The idea that our, our civil facades uh, are just like easily dropped masks that once our survival is at stake, we become, let's just say, I don't know, a split faced mashing tooth tendril monster. And, you know, this this concept also comes to play that always freaked me out was like it's impossible. Like once you end up in an insane asylum, it's impossible to convince another person that you're sane. So like (laughs) once you're in this situation, it's impossible for me to be like, no, Jake, I'm not the fucking monster. Jake, I'm not the monster. Like you just seem you just seem more and more like the monster. The more you scream at another person that you're not the fucking monster. Wilford, uh, that it's an amazing shot. Wilford Brimley in the shed when he opens the visor and there's just the noose back there. Yes. It's like, I'm okay now. Right. I'd like to go back inside, please. And in a way, he promise I won't hurt anybody, (laughs) you know, because, and in a way, um, he's, he's uh, uh, not the smartest one, but He's protecting the entire world by what he does. So he goes AWOL and starts destroying all the equipment around the uh, around the 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 uh, Arctic base. Arctic base. Or they're technically in they're technically in Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, they filmed in Canada, 
and uh, the original story took place in the uh, in the Arctic Circle in so the north. He uses some ridiculous computer program, by the way. I don't know what he was using oh, to like calculate the, how quickly the world would get to- taken over by this. It's alien. the one part of the movie that aged so terribly so is these Vic Twenty computer simulations. Being able to like tell you how you know uh, uh, how the world would end up completely infected by this thing within twenty seven thousand hours. No, that's like that's silly. But uh, when he does the computer like simulation yeah. with the gra- with the, the pixel cells. graphics yeah yeah like there's no program that did that yeah. <laughs> he had he was like in basic he was like programming in basic like go to 10 point like those were pixel graphics yeah. by wilford brimley just staring at them so so anyways he's protecting the the planet from itself by doing that it looks like he's gone awol and he's just trying to destroy to, to you know kill everybody and, and that he's like lost his mind but really he's just trying to save the planet by well, destroying everything this is another big deal is there are a million fan theories mm. about who was infected when the definitive timeline. So you think maybe he was infected ba- even back then and he was trying to. Yes. Or maybe not. I don't know. It's That's almost not important. The thing is so adaptable and so that's nefarious. Thing. That's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> Take a shot. I know. It's just so many. We should have, have made you, a Have you heard of uh, the of gasoline test theory? No. Um. Are you still are you still listening? If you if you're scared of spoilers, too bad. Uh, when it comes down to the ending with uh, Keith David and uh, Kurt Russell, uh, they share a drink of whiskey, and there are people that claim that that is the hidden clue that like who is actually still the monster. Ah, interesting. Because yep. he would because the because uh, Kurt Russell was seen filling liquor bottles to make Molotovs to burn the monster. Ah, and so it would make more sense that after everything had gone down. That like what he would have on his person wasn't a, a bottle of bourbon; it was just another Molotov. And so when Keith David just drinks it without commenting, like uh, Kurt Russell laughs a little, and instead of like a chummy like eh, "life's fucked," but you're all right, Keith David. Instead, people interpret that as like "I fucking knew it." <laughs> yeah. Oh, really? Yeah. That's that's amazing. And that ending is so fantastic. That just like. And in the inter- uh, in the documentary, you. Uh, you saw, you heard the happy that ending. They made a happy ending. It's just hilarious. It's never been. It's never seen the light of day. They didn't even use it in test screenings. But mm-hmm. they did shoot a happy ending where Kurt Russell is like taken back to stateside and like a nice doctor is like, "Yep, you're definitely human and you definitely won and the day is saved." So coming back to Botten's work, I want to kind of finish that out and move over and talk a little bit about Dean Cundy. Um, to, to kind of circle back around just just wanted to throw in a few more tidbits out there that we we, we picked up along the way uh, they, they they melted plastic for the head stretching off scene that you mentioned earlier it released an explosive paint thinner which uh, made the prosthetic explode when Carpenter put flame under the camera <laughs> lens um, there was definitely a lot of experimentation going on I love that they used an actual armless actor for the stomach uh, yeah yeah cut ripping so at one point, uh, and one of the coolest scenes in a, in a fucking movie, the stomach just like of this guy. They're doing CP. They're doing um, uh, what do you call it? Defibrillators on her, on him, and, and they're pushing it down. At one point, he's going to put the defibrillator down. The stomach just fully opens up because he is, of course, a monster, and uh, rips the uh, arms off of this guy. They used an armless actor with prosthetics in order to make that happen. And it's a very like I oh, when I when I heard about that, I could not imagine like so they got a guy who lost. His arms in an industrial accident, and they literally made him stick his new realistic fake 
arms into a pneumatic vice and uh, rip them off again. Uh, and it's this, you know, there's blood, there's yeah. like fake bones jutting out of everywhere. Yeah. Like that, that's gotta, like that guy definitely got fucking hammered that night. Yeah, for sure. That'll fucking haunt you. Um, um, so, oh. uh, yeah. And, and, um, of course we mentioned earlier, but Stan Winston, they, 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 Botten and his team were so overworked trying to get all these monsters together uh, in time. They actually hired Stan Winston, another special effects guy, to do the dog creature um, for that dog scene that is so classic and amazing. And you know what? The, you know what the fucking worst part of that dog sequence is? What? When, first, when the dog's face fucking melts off. There's a lot of like splitting. There's a lot of like when opening. the head just opened. Okay, I, I. But I, the worst, the worst. What? Is when they fucking hose down one of the dogs in KY jelly. Yeah. <laughs> because like everything up until yeah, that point, you can have like, like an emotional ooh. like react. Like you're like distance. Like okay, I I, I know it's a puppet. I right. know that like the guy is hidden in the center mass of the monster, and the dog head is like an you know an a, literally an arm puppet at the end of some guy. Mm-hmm. Like I'm okay. But then when you see an actual dog being like, oh fucking gross, ew, ah oh, fuck, get me out of here. <laughs> it like sells it. Yeah, for sure. A lot sure. of good dog acting. A lot movie. of good dog acting, really good dog acting. I almost said that out loud. I, I want to bring this up now so that I can kind of uh, talk about it as we go. Uh, I watched it the other night um, for probably like the fourth, fifth time with Lexi, who'd never seen it before. And I have to say, first of all, if uh, the thing is like like the best movie to watch with people who've never seen it before, it's such a good fucking movie for that because they just they they just will never expect. Like they'll be like, oh, this is like. Um, okay, what is this? What is this? and then the first when that dog's face opens up, it is just like whoa, bananas! It is so. I mean, you, before that, you get the autopsy. You've got that crazy mutant monster. So there is already some placement of like there's going to be some gross monster stuff happening. But when that fucking dog's face opens up and those fucking like whip like uh, <sighs> tentacle things start, re- dude, any person just goes. Oh, like every, everybody, like she was just like, what? And then like, you know, there's just so many long drawn out, disgusting, uh, body horror monster stuff in this that is so enjoyable to watch with somebody who's never seen it. And I'm literally laughing with glee and like, cause Bowden's I love these scenes so beyond, much. Like we've all had nightmares. We've all like thought of fucked up shit and like. This fucking 22-year-old that was, like, put on an official studio movie, like, nightmares beyond nightmares for some of that shit. Yeah, like, really, really surprisingly scary. Again, I feel like the way they set it up from the beginning is that it's just going to be one of those psychological uh, suspense films. So getting the shock of this incredible monsters, gory monster stuff is, like, is... so great, and, and and we'll get to this, of course, but also partly why it was shit on at first, which is ridiculous to me. Uh, John Carpenter said uh, that his main regret about the original movie and most movies in general is that it always boiled down to a man in a suit. Yeah. And, like, you can hide it as much as you want. You can do all these effects to, like, raise suspense. But even a- he specifically calls out even Alien, when it finally stands up and is, like, in full view, it's just a guy in a suit and uh-huh. you cannot say that about the thing no not at all it's like endless it's just endlessly coming after you too and it's endlessly everybody around you which is such a great concept such a good premise and when the premise sinks in with a person who's never seen it before 
I feel like I remember, or at least I'll just speak for myself. When it first sank in for me, what the premise of the thing was mm-hmm. about, you know, a half an hour into it or whatever, I was like, "Fuck yeah!" I remember I, tur- I watched it with Ed Larson, who like loves the the this movie, and I turned. I was like, "Wait, wait, so is this what's happening?" He was like, "Yep." I'm like, "That fucking rules." That uh, is so smart. How did Lexi react to the uh, blood test scene? That's what I want to know. Oh, my God. It's so good. Dude, the blood test scene is one of the fucking greatest scenes <laughs> in a horror movie ever. I don't know because I was screaming and laughing with so much glee. I mean, she had to look away a lot, you know. Um, um, that uh, that scene, the the pacing of that scene is just they build the tension, then perfect. they cut it a little, and they perfect. build it, and they cut it. We'll get to you last. Like it's just perfect. It's so, and you just start shaking. They're just like, oh, and the fact they're tied down is so perfect. It's so smart. Oh, I love it. I, I, I that yeah, that go back and watch the pacing of that scene, and and just for true perfect horror movie pacing of this suspense. And my heart was pounding, even knowing exactly how the scene goes down. My heart was pounding right in the beginning, and then exactly, Kurt Russell totally eases the tension by calling out one of them and having this conversation. And you're like, and so you the whole time you think it's going to be that guy, and then he fu- and then it fucking ends up being um, the very next test he does right off of accusing that guy, which just makes the perfect level of like oh my god oh my god what's gonna happen what's gonna happen yeah it's probably is that guy holy shit it's not that guy one of the best uh someone i can't i was listening to a bunch of geek podcasts like trying to get an angle and uh, someone pointed out that in the uh test scene each individual test is like built up as a really tense moment they zoom in on the dish and it's like okay and the one test that they like do a far shot because yep. they're like like they visually they communicate like oh this one isn't an important one yeah that's the one that goes kablooey yep and <sighs> it just it's the best bait and switch of a of a of a horror scene it's so smart um so yeah uh uh also uh, uh shout outs to cinematographer dean cundy who um they had to create a, a lot of lighting effects for the creatures themselves in order to really try to attempt to um get you uh the eye to not feel so much like it's just a bunch of p- melted plastic right and so there was a lot of really smart lighting effects that was done using shade and darkness to give it that feel of realism and that's a lot thanks apparently, to Dean Cundy's work it was apparently a, a source of tension on set where Cundy would overlight some of the characters or some of the monsters sometimes and it would be uh Botine who Actually, was like ah. no, no, no. I like don't show the seams. Like hide it, hide it, hide it. Gotcha. Interesting. Um, and this brings me to my grand theory about why the thing is so legendary, and it boils down to the lighting. Ah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a lot of movies at the time that did oopy goopy practical effects. That yeah. was just how movies were made at the time. That's if you had a budget, you hired a Stan Winston or a Rick Baker to make some weird. Uh, prosthetic effects so like it you know practical effects were at their basic height matte painting all this stuff were basically as good as it would get Um, but the lighting was super dark and so when did the thing become popular during the VHS era Ah. and if you think about how shitty VHS quality is in terms of like actual video resolution and in terms of color reproduction, uh, even the movies themselves, this was shot in CinemaScope widescreen and like most home versions were like in pan and scan. So what you had was this blurry, dark mess of a visual experience where literally at any second something could just pop out of the shadows. And like not only that, the dark lighting and the low resolution 
basically sold the effects as like, oh no, that's real. That head is a spider now. Like, you, even though the effects are brilliant, the the obfuscation of the technology of how most people watched it ramped up the realism by a million. Yeah. Because you had to fill in the blanks. You had to fill in the missing details. You, the active viewer, had to make it real. Mm-hmm. And that's what I think cemented the thing as a truly, like, deeply personal and like and viral experience. And he did that on Halloween as well. And that's how he first got his start with John Carpenter. He uh, he collaborated with uh, Deborah Hill on low budget films. She went on to co-write Halloween with Carpenter and he was recruited for that. And and if you look back at Halloween as well, also very good use of darkness and dark lighting in that. And they all were around the same, you know, very, very close to each other in time. And again, what sold Halloween, I think, really in a really big way was that was that use of dark lighting also he was one of the first people to use the steady cam in film and that's what made him famous for uh his work on halloween as well um kundi would go on to work on who framed roger rabbit back to the future trilogy apollo 13 jurassic park roadhouse big trouble in little china and jack and jill Oh. <laughs> and then Robin Botton, you know, the Adam Sandler classic Jack and Jill. I will say this, though. Cinematography wise, very difficult to pull off. <laughs> no matter how terrible the fucking shitty, uh, you know, uh, writing You really was, believe that Adam Sandler and Adam Sandler were in the, were same-, both in the same room. Uh, Botton uh, would go on to work on Robocop, Total Recall, Seven, Fight Club, Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas. I mean, these are incredible special effects films that he he ended up uh, getting to work on afterwards. Um, these are juggernauts of, of as special effects and lighting and and camera trickery. When uh, production was done, uh, Bowden, uh, basically his entire body collapsed on him. He yeah. had double pneumonia. He was like malnourished. He was he literally was hospitalized as soon as like the job was done. It's it seems and he seems just like a really cool dude. Like in yeah. the in the interview in the documentary, he just seems like a dude I want to hang out with really bad. He's like just very chill, very enthusiastic about about the work that he did and just a super duper comic book nerd. You know, guy. Um, Let's pray he never sexually assaulted anybody. <laughs> Please. Um, <laughs> now let's uh, talk a little bit about the score. Um, Ennio Morricone did the score of this movie, not Carpenter, which Carpenter did do a lot of his own scores. Halloween, yeah. namely, being the big achievement. That heavy synth soundtrack that yeah, you associate with uh, John Carpenter. Let's uh, hear that again for a little bit. Spooky, but synthy spooky. That's why it works so good. Mixed with strings, right? Yeah. Ennio Morricone said regarding the thing by John Carpenter, I've asked him as he was preparing some electronic music with an assistant to edit on the film. Why did you call me if you want to do it on your own? He surprised me. He said, I got married to your music. This is why I've called you. I was quite amazed. He called me because he had my music at his wedding. Then when he showed me the film, later when I wrote the music, he didn't exchange, we didn't exchange ideas. He ran away nearly ashamed of showing it to me. I wrote the music on my own without his advice. Naturally, as I had become quite clever since 1982, I'd written several scores relating to my life. And I had written one, which was electronic music, and Carpenter took the electronic score. 
So that's his little story about the making of it. Ennio Morricone, the spaghetti western master of music, the good and bad and the ugly composer. I'm a huge fan of Ennio Morricone's music. He's a fantastic conductor for uh, scores on soundtracks. Quentin Tarantino actually used unused segments of uh, Marconi's thing, the thing score. Oh, awesome! To score uh, the Hateful Eight because oh, cool. he was so desperate to have that that like pedigree on his movie, but he just wasn't able to get original music from him. The scheduling just didn't work. That's super cool. Um, now this is this is what really shocked me uh, doing research. Uh, I, I always knew that the thing was a sleeper hit. Yeah. But it did not dawn on me just how much people were like just not about this movie when it came out. It yeah. did not do well critically. Uh, famously, this is this is like the, the folk wisdom about this is uh, it came out two weeks after E.T. had come out. And like apparently just like because E.T. was so revolutionary for having a cuddly alien, people just were tired of having like an alien invader story uh-huh. because they were thinking it was some kind of like, you know, like the old, the old movie was hokey as hell. It was, you know, the invader in the flying saucer kind of deal. And the, um, the marketing for this movie was very mysterious. So you didn't really know what you were getting into. Yeah, exactly. It, it also, I can't believe it came out the same day as Blade Runner. Yeah. How nuts so is that? So Blade Runner took the number two spot on top of that. 1982, by the way, we could have almost done an episode on 19, the, just the film year that is 1982. It's gone down in history as one of the greatest years in film uh, of all time. One of the greatest summer blockbuster years of all time. I mean, can you imagine Blade Runner, the thing and E.T. all coming out within like a month of each other? I mean, that's completely insane to me. And, it, and so it did get kind of lost in the running, but also people just did not like what what I seem to love so much about this film, which is that you've got these insane like monster special effects mixed with this psychological terror, and they just felt like the monster effects um, cheapened that or overshadowed it or, or whatever. I have a uh, review from 1982 by uh, Roger Ebert, and uh, this is his opening salvo. The Thing is a great barf bag movie, all right, <laughs> but is it any good? I found it disappointing. For two reasons, the superficial characterizations and the implausible behavior of the scientists. I, it, it blows my mind. Is that that's that's it for the review? No, no. Uh, characters have never been Carpenter's strong point. He says he likes his movies to create emotions in his audience. And I guess he'd rather see us jump six inches than get involved in the personalities of his characters. This time, though, despite some roughed-out typecasting and a few reliable stereotypes, the drunk, the psycho, the hero, he's populated his ice station with people whose primary purpose in life is to get jumped on from behind. Uh, the thing, basically, is just a geek show. A gross-out movie in which teenagers can dare one another to watch the screen. There's nothing wrong with that. I like being scared, and I was scared by many scenes in The Thing. But it seems clear that Carpenter made his choice early on to concentrate on the special effects and technology than to allow the story and its people uh, get the spotlight. Uh, it's uh, so insane to me. I, I, I New York Times was even harsher. This is uh, Vincent Canby from the New York Times. Uh, John Carpenter's The Thing is a foolish, depressing, <laughs> overproduced movie that mixes horror with science fiction to make something that is neither as fun as one or the other. 
I honestly believe the VHS effect kind of falls into it. Like if you were a film reviewer at the time, you were getting inundated with all sorts of like ooky gooky special effects. And yeah. I don't think you quite recognized what they were doing to elevate the art form. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 the and seeing it mixed in with something that would actually really had a strong premise and played out really wonderfully. Um uh, as well, it's just sort of it blows my mind that it was so uh, shat upon. And, uh, John Carpenter at the time was also kind of still seen as a schlockmeister, right, like kind right. of a uh, an exploitative, like under budget kind of. Again, same issue that uh, Howard Hawks had back in the day that uh, horror was deemed lowbrow, was deemed less so, than. And this is even worse, sci-fi horror. Yeah. So you got an, a spaceship in there too, and all that's uh, all that sort of business. Um, John Carpenter said about all this, I take every failure hard. The one I took the hardest was The Thing. My career would have been different if that had been a big hit. The movie was hated, even by science fiction fans. They thought that I had betrayed some kind of trust, and the piling on was insane. Even the original movie's director, Christian Nyby, was dissing me. (laughs) Jeez Louise. That really was a shock to me when I read all that, because honestly, when I first saw this movie, I felt like it was just very quick quickly on my list of like top 10 horror movies of all time mm-hmm. uh easily top five sci-fi movies of all time um you know I, it's it's uh just a wonderful wonderful film and i hope that if you haven't seen it uh you will see it uh, uh even though we went into a lot of it but we went into a lot of it matter it does not matter it it's really so, it's it holds up. It's except so for the well dumb done. computer graphics. Yeah. <laughs> but it's like it's only like two seconds. By the way, um the the lady uh calling out the chess moves at the beginning of the movie, that is John Carpenter's wife. Uh and also one of two one of the only two female presences in the movie. The mm-hmm. only other time a woman is in the film is when they're watching that game show on uh on their VHS with the little shitty TV. That's the only two times a woman is in the film. I read one take that one that that like really went into how like oh no you don't understand it was the 80s and this is an all-male cast and this is like about an insidious like infection that's spreading amongst them this is clearly an AIDS metaphor and like I, that sounds very clever but like no nah, they're just a bunch of fucking nerds yeah they're just a bunch of nerds I wanted to tell a spooky alien story like good 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 try that was a good that was a fun take <laughs> Um, so, uh, uh, I will also mention there was a 2011, um, uh, film that came out, a prequel, uh, that came out, uh, that, uh, I didn't see and Jake, you didn't see it either, right? It stars, um, uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead and, uh, also, uh, Tormund Giantsbane from Game of Thrones is in there. Oh. You know, the red beard guy. I think Ed said he kind of liked it. I haven't seen it yet. I haven't heard a lot about it. You, yeah. Good. There's a famous thing where apparently the effects company that they had hired had done a lot of really awesome test footage for cool uh, prosthetics. And then at some point, the uh, backers or the studio or someone made the call to switch to mostly CGI based effects. And that got a lot of nerds mad. But uh, a lot of the a lot of the fan response that I've been reading basically said to just skip it. So, uh, yeah, it, it tells the story of the Norwegian camp that they discover, of course, where the dog came from, where uh, the Norwegian camp is the camp that discovered the thing. And so they uh, they tell the story of that camp, which I think is a really great idea for for a sequel or prequel to the thing. I will also say this about 1982 is the thing that I thought was amazing. You know, in the movie um, near the beginning, when they go to the Norwegian camp and find that it's destroyed mm-hmm. and discover, you know, the 
weird sort of like tomb thing or whatever inside of it where the the alien yeah, yeah. must have been dug up. That was actually the original set after it had been blown up at the <laughs> end of the movie. So they went back and they filmed that was the last thing they shot. So they literally blew that up in the actual film, and then they used that actual as the wrecked as remains the wrecked remains. So I think that's an amazing thing, like knowing that going into it, knowing like, oh, they're exploring their own destroyed camp is a really cool idea. Like, like this is what's going to happen to you. I think that's such a cool um, thing that that's that's thrown in there. Uh, another thing was uh, they, you know, they filmed a lot on set in uh, Canada in the snowy uh, facility, but also they filmed a lot in Los Angeles, a lot of the internal scenes, uh, and to still create a convincing Arctic base, they used a highly refrigerated set that they were like pumping moisture into to just really get like a bone chilling atmosphere in there. And this was happening during a record breaking uh, heat wave in oh, Los wow. Angeles. So the people would finish like filming, chattering, like, you know, ch- shivering and chattering teeth and then just walk into 102 degree heat. Oh, my God. That's crazy. <laughs> yeah, it was all like sub freezing conditions where either on the L.A. sound stages or in the small town of Stewart in northern British Columbia, where they shot everything else. Uh, yeah, I think that's about yeah. it, right? I'm yeah, I'm glad we got to kind of uh, get into it because this was always a movie I loved but never took the time to learn about. It's fantastic, sci-fi horror, perfect for I think the Wizard and the Bruiser to cover. Uh, I will kiss one million cats. I will punch four dogs. <laughs> you decide, America. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yeah, you can uh, catch me on Twitch, uh, Holdenator's Ho. Also, um, if you would love to do this, we would love you for it. Write a review and rate us on iTunes. It helps us out a lot. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. Sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. In a fast paced world, Every day brings new challenges and new opportunities. At Strayer University, we know a thing or two about getting and staying ahead of change. For over 130 years, we've been providing students like you with innovative tools and customized support. So you can find your way forward and always keep striving. Visit Strayer.edu to learn more. Strayer University is certified to operate in Virginia by CHEV and has many campuses, including at 2121 15th Street North in Arlington, Virginia.